Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Micah chapter 3. Uh, so we're in the middle of a series called Seeing God's Goodness in the Darkness. Uh, we're going right through the book of Micah. Actually, today we're going to cover uh, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, so we've got a long way to go today. Uh, but uh, I, think, I think it's going to be, man, a good morning looking into the book of Micah. So if you can turn to Micah chapter 3. Uh, John Maxwell famously said, probably one of his most famous quotes, is everything rises and falls on leadership. Uh, while he might be oversimplifying his point a little bit, I think we all understand what he means. Leadership in a team or organization makes a massive difference. For a team to accomplish its goals, good leadership is key. It's a part of the mix. And of course, bad leadership is almost a guarantee of failure. Kind of like all gas, no brakes when you're up by four scores in the Super Bowl late. Bad leadership leads to failure. I'm willing uh, to bet that you've experienced this before, right? The difference between a good boss and then, well, the boss that we don't even talk about at home anymore, right? Uh, The difference between a good coach uh, and the high school coach that just wanted to get that extra stipend for a couple of hours of work after school. Dumbledore versus Voldemort, right? Leading out of fear and selfish gain never works in the long term. But what we see in Harry Potter, I was talking to Olivia about Harry Potter this morning, is self-sacrifice and bravery always wins out. Even in the church, and perhaps some of you guys have experienced poor leadership in the church before. It's conflict between the deacons and the pastor. Bad leadership makes a difference. It can ruin everything. And so when we get to Micah chapter 3, what we're going to see is a leadership problem for God's people. That their country has risen, but then dramatically fallen because of their leaders. Check this out, Micah chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, here, you heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. Who's he talking to now? Their leaders, the people in charge. And Micah is going to give us in chapter 3, three specific types of leaders that deserve judgment, actually, because of their poor leadership. So check out the first one, unjust judges. So verse 1 again, and he said, Here you houses, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You hate the good and love the evil who tear the skin from off of my people And their flesh from off of their bones who eat the flesh of my people and fillet their skin from off of them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Wow. He just looks at these judges, these people who are supposed to be responsible for justice and says, hey, instead of protecting people, instead of enforcing what is right, instead of doing right and what is just by the people, you actually hate what's good, and you love what's evil, and then vividly describes their perversion of justice like cannibalism. They are devouring the very people they are supposed to be protecting. And there's no violation. 
like evil being done by someone who's supposed to be preserving justice. Is there? Isn't that why we react so strongly to crooked cops, corrupt judges, bringing it home? Isn't that why we react so strongly to immoral pastors who lack character? It's an extra level of wickedness when people who are in a position to protect instead use and abuse the people under them. And so Micah is going to tell us for those judges, not judging justly, there is going to be judgment. Judgment is actually going to be they're just not going to hear from the Lord, the source of justice. Verse 4, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Remember what we've already talked about that's going to happen. These people in Judah have avoided the invasion of the Assyrians for now. But remember, historically, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Babylonians are going to come. so, So what did Micah just tell them? Hey, when you need God, When you finally decide that what is right needs to be protected, it's going to be too late when the Babylonians show up. It's going to be too late. God's not going to be found by you in order to protect you from what's coming. It's kind of like the playground bully. Anybody ever have a playground bully growing up? Now, some of you younger kids, you might not know this, but before uh, you could have money on your account at lunch and the school would keep track of it, you actually had to bring cash to school every day to buy your lunch. And sometimes on the playground, there would be a bully, and guess what he was after? Your lunch money, right? So he'd beat you up and steal your lunch money until the even bigger dude showed up, right? Right? Somebody finally got fed up with a bully. It's giving him a taste of his own medicine, and everybody who'd always complained about getting beat up by the bully on the playground, what are they then? Silent right? Everybody just walks away. Nobody's defending the bully anymore. And that's what Micah is saying is the future holds. You've been a bully to your own people. So guess what? When the bigger, badder bully shows up, there's gonna be nobody to protect you or say anything about that injustice. Secondly, though, second group of leaders he points out is untrue prophets. Verse five, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. What do you say? These prophets who are supposed to be speaking the truth revealed to them by God instead are just looking for profit. They'll say whatever the person who feeds them wants to hear. You putting money in my pocket? Good word from the Lord for you. You don't have money to bring? Man, you're not getting a good word from the Lord from this prophet, these prophets. They constantly have their hand out exchanging blessings for cash. You don't slide them a $100 bill. Man, you're not getting anything from these guys. So what judgment is coming to them? Well, God's going to withhold the truth from these supposed truth tellers. Check it out, verse 6. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Saying, God's not going to reveal himself to you anymore. 
No insight, no understanding, no revelation. I love the little play on words. The seers aren't going to be able to see. The truth tellers aren't going to be able to distinguish the truth. When they need the truth, it's not going to be available to them anymore. And I love for both of these, what's the refrain? No answer from God. This consistently in the scripture is the worst kind of judgment from God. It's not, it's not that there's an invading army. Or it's not that your circumstances are difficult in this season. It's when God finally lets go and gives us what we think we really want. You don't want accountability from God? Go for it. But what happens when you need God to hold somebody else accountable? You don't want justice and taking advantage of other people? And isn't it frightening to have it? Because what happens when you're the one being taken advantage of? You don't want to hear the truth? You want to live a life based on lies? What happens when you get it? When you really need the truth to anchor you and there's no truth left for you. It's frightening. So then verse 8, Micah just points out, I love this. He's just like, basically, I'm not those guys, right? But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of God, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. It's like, hey, nobody's going to accuse me of sugarcoating the truth for money. I'm here delivering a difficult message. Why? Because God's revealed it to me. I got the Spirit of God on my life. Then the leader number three is ungodly leadership. It's like if you missed anybody, it's like we're going to catch everybody. Just in case you're not in the other two categories, we're, gonna, we're about to get you. Verse nine, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. He just goes, hey, it's political leaders. It's religious leaders. He's saying, it's all you guys. Judgments for a bribe, religious teaching for a price, divination for money. All of you who are building this great nation are doing it, he says, with Blood. And then check out verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. What are they saying? So remember, this is in Jerusalem. This is where God dwells. They're looking up the temple mount to the temple where God dwells. And they're saying, well, what could happen? What could happen to us? Is it God here? Is it God going to come through with us no matter what we do? And so judgment is coming for them too. God's going to remove his presence from his people, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now, Zion is a place, a word, often describe a place where God dwells with his people. Zion is what Jerusalem is supposed to be. And in particular, the temple, where the temple is, is supposed to be the place, not just where God dwells, but where God dwells with his people. And so this judgment is Micah saying, hey, you've presumed on the Lord in his presence long enough. 
And so Zion is going to be flattened. It's going to be a field. What you've built with your blood or the blood of others is going to be overturned. God is not going to be present. And I love this last phrase, the mountain of the house, a wooden height. You know what he's saying? You're going to look up at the temple again, but instead of reminding you of God's presence, it's just going to be an empty building. It's going to be a reminder that God's presence is no longer dwelling here in the way that it used to. Now, this is heavy, right? No revelation, no voice from God, no justice, no truth, no presence, but Micah chapter 4, verse 1. The mountain, the house, the empty structure is going to be left of the temple, right? What's going to happen? Verse 1, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all the mountains, and it shall be lifted up on the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord shall come from Jerusalem. What's the promise? Destruction is going to come. What Micah said is going to come true, but who's going to show up? God. Historically, we know that the people were taken into exile, into Babylon after this. But God's promise is he's going to establish his temple. He's going to establish his mountain. He's going to be the one that teaches his ways. And people, not just Jews, are going to flow to him, but of all the nations are going to come to the Lord. But he's not going to need corrupt justices and poor prophets. He's not going to need these leaders who are unjust. But he's going to establish his own kingdom himself, and he's going to teach his people directly. Well, what's he going to teach? He's going to teach his ways that we may walk in his path. God's going to show up teaching. God's going to show up judging. Check it out, verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Who's going to be the judge? God. He's going to replace the corrupt judges. And the result of God enforcing justice is going to be what? Check it out. Verse 3 again. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. When God rules, what's going to happen? Peace. Yeah. Weapons can be turned into farm equipment. It's going to be amazing. Tanks. Right? Man, they're going to be turned into tractors. Right? F-16s. We're going to tear those things apart. Right? We're going to use those, turn those into farm equipment. And it's going to be a worldwide peace or shalom. Nobody needs a weapon to defend themselves from wickedness that day. No violence, no oppression, it will be peace. Sounds amazing, right? Well, who's going to lead it? Verse 6. And that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the land and gather all those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make a remnant. And those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in the Mount Zion. Remember, where his presence dwells with his people from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord's going to do it. 
The Lord's going to gather his people. He's going to assemble them together. It's not just the best of the best either. Who is it? He's going to gather the lame and the crippled, the afflicted all together. Israel. Israel will be a joke going into exile. A paralyzed nation. They will be cast off and forgotten. A people will no home. But what's their hope? New president. What's their hope? The right political party being the majority in Congress. What's their hope? But we need a new preacher. He's not funny enough, right? He doesn't tell them good enough jokes. It's a little boring. What's their hope? The Lord will do it. Gather his people together. God promises he himself will restore and lead his people. What's better than replacing a corrupt judge with a good judge? A perfect righteous judge. What's better than replacing a good prophet or replacing a bad prophet with a good prophet? The Lord who always reveals the truth cannot lie. What's better than running the bad preacher out of town, getting a good preacher? Man, the Lord showing up and teaching you the truth. Man, what's, what's better? What's better? The old boss is gone, you got a new CEO. Man, when the sovereign Lord of the universe leads his people. And Micah is saying that's what's coming next. The Lord's going to restore the temple. The Lord's going to teach the truth himself. The Lord's going to bring justice. And the Lord is going to gather his people back to himself. Now, how do we understand these promises? Remember last week we asked this question, how do we understand biblical prophecy? You guys remember this? And I gave you two ways to understand biblical prophecy. That we have to understand the present story and the prevailing story, right? Remember this? The present story, for those of you who aren't here, is the near fulfillment. So the near fulfillment, the present fulfillment of this is what? Micah 3 and 4, here's what's going to happen. The people are going to go to exile. This judgment is going to happen. God will remove his hand from his people for a period of time. But we find out in Ezra, Nehemiah, what happens? The Lord brings them back, his people back into his land. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city, right? So that's presently what's going on. But remember, there's a prevailing story, a story of the entire Bible. That when we read biblical prophecy, that we're looking at this whole story of what's God, what God is doing. Well, in the prevailing story, what happens? Well, we know in that present story, when they come back, they teach the scripture, people respond to the word, but is it God teaching them? No, no, in the prevailing story, what happens? Jesus shows up. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gathers his people in the Sermon on the Mount, right? And Jesus teaches his people how to walk in the truth. And we know in the prevailing story that Jesus comes as a good, righteous judge. That Jesus comes as a wonderful leader. That Jesus comes as a sacrificing leader who lays down his life on the cross for his people to rescue them from their sin. In the prevailing story, we see Jesus. But here's what we don't see. And we don't see anybody turning their AR-15s into rakes, right? 
We haven't experienced that kind of peace yet. So how are we supposed to understand that? It's clear we can see that Jesus is the one restoring and gathering his people in the text, but what do we do about these promises we don't have yet? There's another important way to understand biblical prophecy. And theologians just use two words, already, not yet. Meaning that there are ways that you and I, as followers, believers in Jesus, already have the promises of God. We already have Jesus' teachings. We have already been adopted into God's family as sons. We've already been forgiven of our sins, right? But there are ways that we have not yet received the full promises of God. We have not yet seen worldwide shalom or peace. And you and I live in that sort of tension. Now, can I draw you a picture maybe to help you understand this? All right, Stephen, we're trying it. You ready? There we go. I don't know why I have to feel like I have to give a commentary on what I'm doing here, but uh, it's just spinning. You guys see this? Oh, you got it. You got it. All right, here we go. So here's often the way we think about time. All right, we think about it. Can you guys see that? Is that big enough or do I need to make it bigger? Bigger? It's good. All right. So we got a timeline, right? Here's what we think. This over here, hello, this over here is this age. This is where we live, all right? And then we think, okay, Jesus is going to come, right? And then there's this age to come, right? And so we got this new heaven and new earth, right? That's not actually the way the New Testament talks about the timeline of Scripture. Check it out. It's like two overlapping timelines. So here's what we got. We got this age, right? And then what happens? Jesus comes first time. Right? But we know from the Scripture Jesus is going to come a second time, right? You guys see that? Right? And then what does that kick off? The what? Age to come. So new heaven, new earth, right? This is revelation. No sorrow, no sickness, right? You guys remember this? No grief, right? Well, guess what? This is right here. This is the already, but what? Not yet. This is where we live. You guys see that? This is where we live. We live in the tension of Jesus already coming, already giving us God's promises. Already, Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing, already chosen, already chosen to be holy and blameless, already predestined as adoption for his sons and daughters, already. We already are the children of God. Already received the gift of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling with us as little temples running around, right? Already, already redemption, it's Ephesians 1 again, forgiveness of our sins, already. Already a right relationship with God, but not yet. But a not yet. Or maybe we could say it this way, a yes, but there's more. Yes, child of God, but there's more. You and I are going to experience that in an even more fulfilling way. Right? A yes, but there's more. 
We have peace with God. And guess what? In the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to have peace with all people. Peace is going to reign. Yes, we've been forgiven of our sins. Yeah, yes, but we still deal with sin all around us and even creeping up inside of us, but there's going to be a day where there's no more sin. Yes, we already have been made whole by Christ, but one day our physical bodies are going to be made completely whole. You see how this works? Already not yet. And we live in that tension. There is more to come. So here, in the overlapping world, in the overlapping timeline, we experience sickness and death. We experience sorrow and grief. We experience hardship. We experience the pull and temptation of sin. We are not perfect reflection of God's goodness, but at Jesus' second coming, he will assemble us. He will gather his people together. We will beat our swords into plows. We will, we will turn our bow and arrows into fishing equipment. We won't need it anymore. And already not yet, some of us will be healed from sickness. We believe that. We pray for that. But all will be healed in the new heaven and the new earth. And already not yet, now, some of us will experience God's miraculous provision. But in the age to come, all of us will experience God's perfect provision. We live in this already, not yet. Some conflicts will end in peace. Lord, may it be so. Ukraine, right now, could it end in peace? But in the already, but not yet. That's, but in the age to come, in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be complete peace. Do you see how this works? Now, let's drive it in a little more personal. Check this out. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 1, here's how he starts his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, do you see it? What? Elect, chosen by God, exiles. What? Here's what Peter says of us. He says, we in this current day and age, in the already not yet, are like the exiles from Micah's story that we have the promises of God, but we're not home. That we've been scattered to the ends of the earth, knowing Jesus, his presence with us, but not all together in one place as one people. That we are exiles. So, three quick things to drive this home about exiles. You and me in the already not yet. As exiles, we respect our leaders, but our confidence is in Christ and Christ alone. We look as exiles across our nation, in our churches, in our government, wherever you want to look, and it is a stark leadership landscape. We see corrupt politicians, we see unjust judges, we see evil leaders, we see oppression and injustice all around us in our churches. We see pastors who are convicted of sexual abuse, who abdicate the responsibility to defend the weak and the powerless. It is bleak. Leadership failure all around us. But we have to remember we're exiles. We already know our leaders are not amazing. And we're looking forward to who? To Christ. 
Jesus is our ultimate leader. Our hope is placed firmly in Jesus. Our confidence is in Christ. Listen, I love you when I say this. If you think a new politician is going to bring us into some sort of time of flourishing, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. And it doesn't matter if they got an R behind their name or a D behind their name. And yet we so easily run from trusting, respecting politicians to what? Oh man, they're saving us. We're hopeless without a change. You, you hear how crazy that sounds? No, 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 no. We are going to go through cycles of terrible leaders over and over again. Occasionally, we're going to get some good ones, but our confidence is never in who's in charge of our country. Our confidence is in the sovereign God of all. Man, we can get a lot out of podcasts from other pastors. I listen to podcasts from other pastors. Let me tell you something. Your newest cool pastor you found on YouTube can't save you. We have to be careful following shepherds, especially ones where we don't get to see their character up close and personal. You want to be disappointed? Man, you follow the latest, greatest, coolest pastor on YouTube. That doesn't mean we don't respect pastors. Can I tell you, it is a joy to be your pastor. I love being your pastor. Now, I'm not saving you. Mitchell's not saving you. Bo's not saving you. Mike's not saving you. You know when we get it right? When we teach the scripture the way Jesus would teach the scripture, that's when we get it right. That's number one. Number two, as exiles, we live in humble obedience in the present. What was the problem in Micah chapter three? They presumed on God's presence. You remember that? Come on, guys, don't we do that all the time? Oh, no, I, uh, I said the prayer when I was nine. I was baptized. First Baptist Church, Franklin Springs. I'm good. Right? Oh, no, no, no. I, I watched Billy Graham on TV. Now I filled out the card. I'm good. So I don't have to worry about obedience, following Christ, right? How is that not the same thing? Isn't it the same thing? I love David Brion says this. We are to live biblically in between the times. Already not yet. We must trust indicatives and obey imperatives. I love it. What's an indicative? A statement of fact. You are a child of God if you have trusted Christ. 100% true. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to do anything for it. When you came to know Jesus, what's true of you? Child of God, you are forgiven of your sins, bought with the blood of Jesus, 100% true. You're a child of God. What, is, what does Peter say? You are a holy nation, royal priesthood. That's 100% true, indicative. And there's some imperatives. Not just are you holy, but what? There's an instruction. Be holy, God says, as I am holy. So do we then just go, oh, I'm good because I have the gospel because Jesus saved me so I don't have to obey? No, 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 no. We're exiles in the already, not yet. Realizing that what's true of us is not fully realized and so we walk in obedience. We don't use the promises of God to excuse our disobedience. We don't go, oh, no, the Lord is with us. I'm cool. 
Instead, we in the already, not yet, use the indicatives to to fuel the imperatives. If you've been around Mercy Hill for a long time, I have never said it this way, but this is what we say over and over again. What's true of you helps you walk in obedience. And so that moment of temptation where you want to give in to sin, you go, oh, wait, 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 hold on. No, no, I'm I'm a child of God. I don't have to walk in that. You see it? Indicative fuels the imperative. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? When you start to believe that you are guilty, full and weighted down with shame because of what you've done, what do you say? Oh, no, no, there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's true. And so we walk in humble obedience, allowing the truth of the gospel, what Jesus did for us in the already, to shape us into the kind of people that look like the not yet. Does that make sense? Third, I'm running out of time. As exiles, we live in a confident hope in our future. If you know Jesus, look at me, your future is bright. If you know Jesus, your future is bright. Think about the joy you've experienced in knowing Christ. Think about it. And then remember, oh man, we're in the already not yet. So think about the joy that's coming down the road. That's good news. Think about it. This is not your home, which means... The very best you've ever experienced in this life, it gets even better. It also means the very worst. The very worst is going to be gone. This is how we walk in this life. Man, it's hard. Some of us Some of us are going to get cancer, and that's going to be it. Until we get to the not yet. Some of us are going to experience unbelievable loss. And we are going to have to fight to remind ourselves of Ephesians chapter 1 that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ until what? Until we get to the new heaven and new earth. We will all be made whole. And God will dwell Zion with his people. And that is our future. We're exiles now. We're not looking around going, the United States of America is the greatest nation to ever walk in history. You know why? Because we know it's not true. Is the United States of America a great nation? Yes. Good gracious. Man, I love freedom and fireworks and apple pie and the whole thing, man. But we're looking forward to being a people where we don't need F-16s to defend us from anybody. Right? We're we're looking forward to the day where it doesn't matter how big anybody's missile silos are. We're looking forward to the day when the people don't lead. It's good now. Democracy is good now, but we want the day where Jesus leads. And so... As exiles, we live in a confident hope in our future. And we might be shaken now. And I know, I know some of you are walking through difficult, difficult days. And I don't want to minimize that at all. 
This life is hard. The scripture never sugarcoats that. This life is hard. But Jesus is going to return. And what is the already not yet will be made the now. Yes, but more. So then how do we respond to Micah 3 and chapter 4 today together? It's real simple. Man, we trust Christ. We treasure Christ. We look to Jesus. We don't put our hope, political leaders, we don't put our hope, who's in Congress. We don't put our hope, even pastors of our churches. We say, man, we're following Jesus. We don't, we recognize we're exiles. This is not home. With our heads held high, we say, but Jesus is bringing me home soon. It's a strange feeling, right? For home to be a place you've never been. That's where we're going. So for some of us today, uh, today is a day of repentance. Where we need to say, you know what the truth is, man, I followed all sorts of leaders and people. And sometimes the leader I followed the most was myself, even knowing that I'm corrupt to the core. So what I need to do is I need to repent of who I've followed and I need to trust Christ, place my faith in Jesus to save me. And for some of us who are already believers or already followers of Jesus, we just need to walk in this daily reminder. And daily reminder that we are exiles. What Jesus has said about us is true. His promises are true. Who we are is 100% true. And we're going to keep preaching that, reminding ourselves of that over and over and over again as our lives slowly conform to who Jesus is. And then some of us are in darkness. We want to see God's goodness. And some of us today, the reminder is, man, God's goodness is coming in Christ. Not necessarily through our circumstances, church. So some of us need to trust Christ for salvation. Some of us need to trust Christ in obedience. Some of us need to trust Christ in the middle of darkness. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.